by the waters, the waters of Babylon. We lay down and wept and wept for these Zion. We remember, we remember, we remember On the willows there we hung up our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs, and our tormentors asked for mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither, let my tongue cling to the of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem's fall, how they said, tear it down, tear it down, down to its foundations. O daughter Babylon, you devastator, happy shall they be who pay you Back what you have done to us. Happy shall they be who take your little ones and dash them against the rock. The word of the Lord. missing something I need. Oh well. <laughs> I don't doubt, I mean I know that there's a lot to be said for self-control. Being composed, like emotionally restrained, detached. But somehow I'd rather hear about it from the Buddha than Scandinavian Lutherans. <laughs> Zen detachment always sounds good to me. I don't have it, but I think I want it. Some sort of resolutely kind and peaceful freedom from ego. But Scandinavian detachment seems frustrating to me. There's a sort of continuum or something, frozen, Cold, cool, warm, hot. I've always kind of loved it that Miles Davis turned his back on the audience when he played his horn. Turned his back on Western civilization. He was so beautifully cool. But am I, if I'm at the co-op with my kids and we're in a hurry and everyone's hungry and my son breaks a jar of pasta sauce and I'm feeling a bit heated and some white middle-class urban hipster who thinks he's cool tells me to be cool, I'd be frustrated. Miles Davis invented cool as a sort of resistance to official culture, the empire's culture, Racist, white, square. Miles wasn't going to perform for the man. 
Now, the man is cool. Now, cool has become the official culture. It's like a global phenomenon. It's the central ideology of consumer capitalism. Cool was one thing when Miles Davis did it so beautifully. It was a little different when the white children of the privileged majority put it on. Now, cool is manufactured by corporations. Products are cooled and uncooled to stimulate the economy. Gestures and speech patterns and postures, nonchalance, replicated and replicated and replicated. Cool used to be an attitude that was fostered by rebels or like political dissidents or slaves. People for open rebellion invited punishment, attachment distancing itself from authority rather than directly confronting it. But in the hands of the merchants of cool, it's become practically a form of social control. It's not really so much a knowing, silent rejection of racist oppression anymore. That's how the empire's machine keeps working always churning resistance into its gears. I read that business leaders are starting to refer to a country's gross national cool. The combination of pop culture, film, food, style. Government, government officials in Japan think its gross national cool will be a new engine for economic growth. I don't even know what that means. But I think it's wild that in 1957, Jack Kerouac was already saying nothing could be more dreary than coolness. Secretly rigid coolness. And all I could do was sit on the side of the bed in despair, realizing that all this was about to sprout out all over America, down to even high school level, and be a treat to him. Maybe ironic detachment actually made people into drones of the empire limiting emotional range, dampening some honest breadth of emotion, quelling rage. Ironic attachment isn't a very effective tool against the empire anymore. It sells max. I mean, I don't know, I'm all for Rush Limbaugh and Terry Jones and, and maybe even Oprah learning to be a little cooler. But maybe there's a lot of people who could stand to turn up the heat a little, who could lose their coolness, and it might be good for the world. I don't know. Protestant white male theology for about the last 600 years has often made it seem like morality requires that one be disengaged from emotions. Is that how it works? There are a lot of different forces that promote emotional restraint. The Psalms are so, so not emotionally contained or restrained or detached. It's embarrassing reading them. You might begin to think that there's this weepy, confused, sometimes barbaric landscape just under the surface of humanity just under the surface of any sort of composure. Throughout the entire book, 
really. There's all this vile cursing and violent ranting juxtaposed with quiet, calm moments of reaching towards some sort of peace or some sort of comfort. The Psalms are confused. It's this jumble. One minute, this sort of sweetness. And the next, it's this raging. If you're not feeling Psalm 137, the sadness and the humiliation and the outrage of Israelites being forced into slavery, there's not much there. I mean, it's not systematic theology. It's like sadness and anger and humiliation and a vulnerable sort of graphic curses made into a poem. Psalm 137 is not restrained. It's really, really sad. And it's really, really angry. Like raw. It's a slave song. Or sort of anti-song because it's about not singing. The giant, crushing, huge Babylonian empire had destroyed these people's homes and their, and their hopes. And they'd been taken into the heart of the empire and been made slaves to the empire. It had destroyed their home and their hope. And so the people are slaving by the waters of Babylon, um, which is this huge, apparently, intricate system of canals, irrigation dams, plumbing, the beginning of Western civilization, some people say. They had running water to remove the empire's excrement. And the Hebrew people are being forced to do this labor, cleaning the waste from the canals that carry the refuse of the empire. And while they're working, or maybe it's break time, their captors or slave drivers, or the poet says tormentors, say, sing us one of those songs you got. We know that you can play the music. The poet says our tormentors asked us for mirth, like some sort of vicious request for a minstrel show. So the poet is very angry and very emotive and dramatic, certainly. He will not sing his song to this audience. Better his plain hand wither and his tongue cling to the roof of his mouth than he play for the man or even accommodate or forget what the empire has ruined. It's like he's calling a curse down upon himself, if he ever forgets. Imagine your tongue clinging to the roof of your mouth. It's sort of this bizarre and graphic curse, like, stuff my throat with my tongue, make my right hand useless if I ever forget. The poet believes it's absolutely essential to remember and to not detach somehow from the violence that the empires perpetrated on the land and on the souls of the people. So the poet's feeling it. Of course, feeling something and violent fantasies of revenge seem different. But maybe not if you've actually seen your children dashed against the rocks. But so, yeah, the poem ends on this note. Happy shall they be who take your little ones and dash them against rocks. 
It's a horrible image. How is that in our scripture? In the lectionary? Read in church? A blood-curdling curse? What kind of people would make this sort of book? Definitely not white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Can you imagine a situation where they would have collected this particular kind of crazy collection of songs and poetry? Have you read the Psalms lately? This collection that's supposed to be used in worship and ceremonies where you'd sing or chant some of these things that are in the Psalms, like, happy may they be who dash your baby's heads against the wall. Like, let his days be few, may his children become orphans, and his wife a widow. May the Lord wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. May curses enter his innards like water and like oil in his bones. I mean, can you imagine a ceremony where people chant these things? Seems like some weird ancient cult, which it was actually. Curses and candlelight and dead birds on the altar, feathers and bones and blood. It was a long, long, long time ago. People smelled different then. And they ate different things and they had like sheep in their houses. And a lot of people believed in curses and spells. Cursing was actually an integral part of life. Ancient Near Eastern texts are filled with treaty curses and inscription curses and incantations to undo curses. That's what people did a lot. They called down curses. It was sort of a weird ancient cultic thing. But I'm not saying we've made a lot of progress. I grew up in a church where on Sunday the youth pastor sat us all down and he drew a train with three cars on a plastic transparency and projected it on the sanctuary wall. A picture of a train. The first car was fact, the engine. The next car was faith, which pulled, was pulled by fact. And then there was a caboose on the train, which was feeling. And the point of the illustration was that you needed the facts that we knew beyond a shadow of a doubt were true, and then you needed the faith that was pulled by the facts, but the caboose, the feeling, you could cut that off and the train would keep running. I mean, isn't that sort of a different kind of weird? Candles and curses, bones, seem kind of all right compared to overhead projectors, plastic sheets, and train illustrations and the authority telling you to go ahead and cut off your feelings. The caboose doesn't matter. Infants and little ones and mothers with children are dashed to pieces. One place and then another and another all over the scripture and actually all over the world. There's a lot of violent imagery displayed across the pages of our scripture. There's a lot of unfettered anger expressed. Do we say that it shouldn't be there, or that they really didn't mean it, or that we need to clean it up? Plenty of editing went on, but 
violent outrage remains firmly a part of the text. And violence remains firmly a part of the world. Humanity is still capable of dashing babies against rocks or flaying them with machetes. How do you react to the brutality or the slow suffocation imposed by the empire? Feeling nothing doesn't seem helpful. Or even not feeling that much. Coolly sitting through the refuse of the empire's canals, making the system run, doing its, lazy, doing its labor. Composure has its, limitation, has its limitations. The Psalms don't always look on the bright side or stay on the sunny side. People say a lot of times these days, you've got to lighten up, move on. This poem calls down a curse on you if you forget. The tormentors ask for mirth. They want to be entertained. The Romans famously said at the height of the decadent empire, all you need to keep the populace from acting up, bread and circuses, enough food and entertainment. So the Hebrew people made this psalm a part of their canon. They kept using it. After the immediate crisis seemed to be over, they still use it. Because the crisis did sometimes seem like it was over. And then Israel faced the temptation of denial, the pretense that there had actually been no loss. There used to be wilderness, but who really cares? Now we have Facebook. So a lot of the earth is becoming inhabitable, so the air is becoming unbreathable and the water undrinkable. The quality of TV. HBO series? TV has never been better. <laughs> Walter Brueggemann, a great theologian and biblical scholar, says, the return from exile, the way out of slavery, the way out of the claws of the empire, begins with an emotional act of civil disobedience. To be emotionally disobedient to the empire, I don't know what it means, but I like the way it sounds, and I think we should do it. Brueggemann says that instead of a fearful, striving, self-preoccupation, you have to re-enter the pain of the world. It's a sort of counter-cool. It's a little bit of a theme these days in the cultural ethos, in the feminist movement, in the Obama administration when someone calls for the payment of reparations to black Americans for slavery. The theme is you've got to move on. You can't dwell in the past. The hope is in moving on. But that is not the feeling in the psalm that's the text for tonight. It doesn't mean there's not truth in it. Maybe in another text for another night. But this text is a very dramatic plea to make the loss present. So yeah, the, the psalm is about not singing. 
Better to lose his plain hand and have his tongue cling to the roof of his mouth than forget or accommodate or play for the man or detach. But what's kind of beautiful is how many times this psalm has been put to music and sung. Verdi put it in the opera and it became an anthem for the Italian resistance. The Irish sang it, Don McLean sang it, you might remember a version from Godspell. And the Rastafarians sang it. And their version has been going through my mind since I read this text last month, which is a really long time for a song to be going through your mind. For the Rastafarians, the water, waters are the Atlantic Ocean and Zion is Africa, where the fathers were taken into captivity and shipped to the Caribbean to be slaves. Rastafarians sing a lot of songs, psalms. They like the sort of emotive, unrestrained, revolutionary vocabulary in the Psalms. Music is the Rastafarians' political tool. They use it to chant down the enemy, the Babylonian shitstem, they say, the corrupt machine of the empire. So rather than taking up arms, they sing some crazy songs. I don't know if it's helped or not. The empire makes slaves, it oppresses, it limits, it murders, it destroys land and souls. If you live in the midst of it, if you enjoy its privileges, how do you participate in its undoing? 